pray with me before we begin. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, that it has power uh, to save, to regenerate, to build up, to sanctify, uh, that you use it, Lord, to accomplish your purposes in redemption, just as you used it to accomplish your purposes in creation, speaking all things into existence. Lord, as we hear from your word today, may it work powerfully in our hearts, on our minds, and our wills, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, uh, that we might be humbled and encouraged and built up and strengthened to your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, pass that off. Uh, before we get to this morning's text, uh, just because I heard there's a VBS going happening here in the announcements, the eloquently delivered announcements, and because I do the youth ministry at Hope up in uh, Lawrenceville, I, I do want to plug VBS for you guys. VBS is really great. And the Joseph story, it's, it's my favorite sort of chunk of scripture, Genesis 37 till the end. If Pastor Phil did not assign me a text to preach on this morning, I probably would have preached on something from those chapters of Genesis. But Pastor Phil was kind enough to allow me to continue in his sermon series in 1 Peter, which pastors are often not interested in doing because they like to, you know, go through it at their own pace, saying what they want to say. But Pastor Phil has given me 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, a short text, but one that is uh, full of meaning. Let's read it together now. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. So oftentimes as a pastor, I'm asked uh, the question, well, first of all, why are you a pastor? And there's a, a long story to that usually, but usually I'll often also get asked the question, well, pastor, why, why do you believe the scriptures? Why are you a Christian? You're a professional Christian. Why do you trust what the scriptures say? And there's technical answers to that question. You know, God elected me and then called me and, you know, gave me saving faith as a divine gift of his free grace. And that's a very good, correct, technical answer. You know, Pastor Phil, if I gave that answer to him when he examined me for ordination, he would have probably given a thumbs up, but then probed a little further because he's the sort of guy that does that. But on a personal level, one of the most sort of profound things for me that contributes to the truthfulness of scripture the truthfulness of the claims of the gospel is how everything in the scripture sort of holds together as one revelation, how it's agreeing with itself, how it bears a singular witness to Christ, how all of the parts relate together. And in our very brief text today, I think I see some of that going on. It's sort of like the text begins with sort of like a seed, like an acorn. It starts small, tiny, a single word, beloved, and it builds and builds and builds and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it talks about you know, the chief end of man, the glory of God. It starts from a small thing and builds outward, outward, outward into the biggest of things. And I want us to look at that today and hopefully be encouraged from the scriptures today through that. First, we'll look at the believer, the identity of the believer, which is what Peter addresses first in the text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He refers to them as something. He addresses them. After for the believer, who the believer is, we will then see what the believer is called to. The believer is called by God to a particular work or two particular works here in our text. 
And after we look at what the believer is called to, we will look at what, what that means for the world, what consequences that has outside of the believer in the world around him or her. And it does culminate in the glory of God. So let's begin with who the believer is. Who the believer is. That first word in the text, beloved. You know, sometimes in scripture, a single word will communicate so much that you could give an entire sermon on a single word. You know, some of us are familiar with uh, the resurrection account in John's gospel where Mary Magdalene is waiting at the tomb and she's waiting outside the tomb and she's weeping because she does not know where they have taken her Lord. And there are two angels there and, and they ask her why she's weeping. And she gives that answer and, you know, it doesn't seem perturbed by the fact there are angels there because she's so focused on the absence of the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus is there and he asks her the same question. And again, she doesn't recognize him. She's so overwhelmed by his absence, and she even asks Jesus that he might take her to him, or take him to her, so that she might receive his body. But then with one word, the Lord Jesus says to her, Mary. Just her name, something presumably he had said before, many times, as she followed him, and believed in him as her Lord, but with that one word, everything came back for Mary. She was no longer weeping of sadness, she was no longer distraught. She recalled who her Lord was, who her Savior was, and he was right there in front of her because she said, he said, rather, her name. One single word. And Peter here, beginning this very brief exhortation with an address to his recipients, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia from the introduction. Beloved is what he calls them. Beloved. This is a profound truth of Scripture. Peter here, before he exhorts them, before he tells them how to live, before he tells them the consequences of their right living in the Lord, he tells them who they are. He tells them they are beloved. And in saying they're beloved, the, the, the first and chief and most important sense of that word is not that Peter loves these recipients of this letter, but that they are beloved by God. God loves these people. He loves his church, and Peter reminds them of this because at the end of the day, the foundation on which the Christian lives is not one built by himself or herself, but is built on the love of God for him or the love of God for her. That is what God did. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son in love. It was out of his great love that he created the universe and all that is in it, out of his great love for his people that he chose them for himself, to redeem them, to make them like the Lord Jesus. The love of God is the foundation on which the Christian's life is built. It's the first movement in the Christian life, and Peter wants us to see that, wants us to hear that. Because if a believer is not loved by God, well then goodness, they're going to have a very hard time living in the world. A very hard time living in the world that is hostile to them, a world that does not know the Lord, and they're going to grow weary and downtrodden. And if they don't know in their heart that the Lord God, the creator and redeemer, loves them, well then they're going to falter and fail and, and die in the wilderness. And so Peter, as he exhorts these churches, as he exhorts these Christians, the first thing he wants them to know is that God loves them. They have trusted in him, and he loves them. And that love is irrevocable. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? 
No, the Apostle Paul tells us that there's no thing, nothing in all of creation that can do that. And Peter wants us to hear that, to know that. Christian, know that God loves you. What a simple truth. But at the end of the day, one of the most profound truths in all of Scripture, the love of God for the saint. It's not just God who loves the congregations and the Christians who Peter writes to, but Peter himself also loves them. And that is also just remarkable. Peter was uh, the guy who, you know, he cut off someone's ear with a sword. Peter was a a bit of an angry man. Peter was not a man who you would think would be sort of lovey-dovey, to refer to someone as beloved. And yet he does, because God has changed his heart, and not only changed his heart to love these Christians, because Christ loved them, but he also called Peter to love these Christians. He is an elder in the church. He is an apostle in the church, and as an elder and as an apostle, God has given him a command, a special command, to love his church, to shepherd his church, and to love his church by shepherding them. You know, we're all called to love one another. The Lord Jesus teaches that to his disciples, teaches that to us, and so Peter is also called to love these Christians, and he does so from a position of of authority. He's he's over them. He oversees them. God has appointed him to that role, and and I feel comfortable saying this because I'm not one of your elders, and I'm not one of your pastor, but that's what your elders and and your pastor are for you all. They They are called by God to love you in a particular way, to tell you hard things from the scriptures, to, to, to discipline you, to encourage you, to sort of scratch at your life and figure out what's going on when you're trying to hide things. You might find them annoying at times or frustrating at times, but God has given you them and given them to you because he loves you. Because he knows he, we need people who do such things. How would these Christians... How would these Christians have survived a hostile environment unless God sent them Peter? Unless God told Peter, unless God commanded Peter under the influence of the Holy Spirit to produce letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, told Peter to go around the Eastern Mediterranean preaching and teaching. These believers would have have faltered. They would have failed unless God had sent ministers, elders, teachers, preachers out of his love. Your elders, your pastor, they love you. They really do, profoundly, deeply. You know, I think of when Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's leaving Ephesus in the book of Acts, and he, he, he thinks, he knows rather, that he's not going to see the church in Ephesus again. And he speaks to them, giving them a final discourse, and after that they just weep. They, they cry, they're, they're They're distraught because Paul will be leaving them. And how much did Paul love the Ephesian church and the elders there and the members there? So much, so much. He shared his very life with them. Your elders here, your pastor here, they share their very lives with you all because they love you, because God loves you, and God loves them. Our lives are built in each layer, each level on the love of God. That is why the Lord Jesus makes it such a central command of his teaching. When he leaves his disciples, he exhorts them to love one another. It's what, what an encouragement it is that today you're going to have an opportunity to love one another, sharing food with one another, praying for members of the church who will be going elsewhere to serve the Lord. Rejoice that God has given you hearts to do such a thing, 
to love one another, tangibly, materially, spiritually, in a world that is sort of wanting for love. The Christian is beloved. But the Christian is also, as Peter says, a sojourner and an exile. And here Peter is doing something that I think all of us are familiar with doing. You know, you, you say something good in order to prepare for something bad. It's like, I love you, honey, but, and then, then you say the bad thing that you did to your spouse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Yes, the Christian is beloved by God. The Christian is, you know, chosen beforehand, before the foundation of the world in Christ, that God has set his heart upon them, yes. What a glorious thing, but that is not going to insulate them from the hardships of this world and this life on earth. Peter says that the Christian is a sojourner and is an exile. Those two things, they sound similar, and they are indeed very similar, but they do draw out two slightly different things in the life of the believer. You know, the sojourner is one who would go to a foreign land and live there, dwell there for a season or a time, but remain a citizen of another country. You know, Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn for a period, and then he went back, to, uh, back to Canaan. Israelites in the Old Testament, they were to treat sojourners, sort of foreigners living among them, with, with dignity and with respect, but those foreigners did not become Israelites if they were indeed sojourners. Sojourners are people who are, who are living in a foreign land, living in a foreign land, and indeed we are living in a foreign land. Some of us might have, you know, might be actually living in a foreign land. You know, we moved to America or moved to New Jersey because New Jersey is sort of strange. Uh, I've, I've never left New Jersey my entire life. I've lived here since I was born, so don't, don't take any knocks against New Jersey. But some of us might physically be f sort of foreigners. We have a, a, a palpable experience of being a sojourner in this physical land, but spiritually we are all Sojourners, how Peter begins this letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. People have been scattered from their true home. We're not living in our true home. Our true home is with the Lord. Our true home was the garden. And yet our first parents were cast out of that garden because of sin. Cast out of God's presence because of sin, because of his holiness and their profanity. And we likewise, or we therefore are sojourners because we are far from that home. We are citizens of a different country, a heavenly country with a different king and a different law. No matter how good our earthly kings may be or good our earthly laws may be, it is different at the end of the day. Even with the Christian king, even with the Christian law, we are sojourners because Christ has secured for us a heavenly kingdom a kingdom that is indeed not of this world, as he said to Pilate. The Christian is both a sojourner, so we're living in a foreign land with rights and citizenship in another country, but we're also an exile. We're also all exiles. And while sojourner has somewhat neutral connotations, exiles, it's just sad to be an exile. One of the most uh, profoundly moving psalms uh, is also one of the psalms that people have the hardest time with, Psalm 137. It's the one that ends with dashing the little ones against the rocks. And we're not going to discuss that portion of the psalm, really, but, but just, just think of the experience of Israel in Babylonian captivity. They were exiles in Babylon 
because of their sin. God, God chastened them, chastised them because of their sin, sent them away from the land, and made them exiles. And because they were exiles, they couldn't get back home. Sojourners can to, go, and, go to and from a certain place. Abraham can sojourn in Egypt, go back to Canaan. But exiles in Babylon, they can't go home on their own accord. They need divine intervention to bring them home. But here, here the beginning of Psalm 137, the Israelites in their experience in Babylonian captivity. You know, Babylon, the greatest city of the ancient world with, with fertile lands on either side of a great river flowing through the city. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Israel was living in the best city, as it were, in the ancient land, ancient world, the most fertile place in the ancient world. We learn about the fertile crescent in you know, elementary school social studies, the lands between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And there Babylon is, the greatest of cities, with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And Israel is next to rivers, great rivers in a hot climate, and as opposed to bathing in those rivers, drinking from them, fishing, playing, no, they're weeping. Because they're thinking about a desert mountain in Canaan, Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, which by earthly standards is nothing compared to Babylon. But by spiritual standards, by heavenly standards, it is, it is the best place. It is where God had taken up his dwelling place, where the temple was, where he was to commune with his people, to live among them as their God. To look like the garden, as it were, a picture of the garden on the earth. And yet in exile, Israel is far from that place. And in exile, they cannot get back there. They need divine intervention. They need a savior, an earthly savior in Cyrus, the king of Persia, who sends them back from Babylon. But all of that happens in the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us sort of as a picture for us that we might see that we are no different than Israel in Babylon. We live in a comfortable place, I would say. The United States, New Jersey, this part of New Jersey where everyone doesn't live on top of each other. We live in a comfortable place, a good place, a pleasant place, and yet it, we are still exiles because there is a better place, a place that is truly our home, and Peter wants us to remember this. Remember that we are exiles, and, and remember in particular that an exile can only get home if God brings him home. How did the Israelites cease to be exiles in Egypt? Well, God sent Moses. How did the Israelites cease to be exiles in Babylon? God sent the Persian Empire to crush the Babylonians. God needed to act divinely, certainly through providential means, but it was God who acted and who saved. And the Christians that Peter writes to, now they're living in the Roman Empire, which, you know, produces some nice things, roads, aqueducts. But at the end of the day, it's hostile to the truth. You know, we, we live in, we have nice roads. We don't really have aqueducts, I don't think, in New Jersey. There's one in New York State, I'm aware. We live in a pleasant place, but one that is ultimately not set on the kingdom of heaven. 
as good as our laws may be at times, they are not ultimately in submission to God's word, to God's law. And so we're always going to be exiles here. We're always going to be people longing for a homeland, longing for a better country. And if we forget that, if we forget that, if we get entangled in sort of the cares of the world, if we get entangled in uh, sort of the things of, of this life, well then, goodness, we very well might lose sight of that better country, that better land. You know, one of the greatest pastors in church history was John Calvin, and when he would talk about sort of earthly suffering, he, he suffered greatly in his life. He was in exile, personally kicked out of France for his belief, and he pastored Christians who had also largely been kicked out of France because of their belief. And when he was trying to sort of make sense of the suffering of his congregation to them in sermons or, 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 or lectures or what have you, he would often say that the reason that God allows this suffering, the reason that God makes your life hard is so that you will not look to the earth because you know the earth cannot satisfy what you desire. It's so that you will rather look to him and look to heaven. Look to his promises to you because he has secured for you an eternal redemption and he will deliver it to you. So trust in him is what Calvin would say, is what Peter would say, is what I say to you. When Israel was living in Egypt or living in Babylon, they relied on one thing, the promises of God. Because they could not see Zion. They could not see their homeland. And likewise, how many of us can just look outside and say, oh, there's heaven. I see it right there. Oh, there's the Lord Jesus returned. No, we, we can't do that yet. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so we also must trust in those promises of God, each and every one of them. Treasure them up in your hearts, whether they be the big and grand promises of God or the small and simple ones. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a comfort to have in the heart of the believer. Peter addresses the believer. They're beloved by God, and yet they're sojourners and exiles on the earth. And as believers, as beloved, as sojourners and exiles, he tells them to do two things. One that is primarily inward and one that is primarily outward. And the ordering of that is significant because the inward leads to the outward. The inward is abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Generally speaking, mortify sin. And the outward, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Live honorable lives, live godly lives. Visibly appear to be godly because truly you are in, in the heart. Peter says to do these two things and these things build on what he's already said. How can the believer abstain from the passions of the flesh? Well, the natural man can't do that. The natural man's heart is set against God. But the one who is beloved by God well, they've received a new heart and a new spirit dwelling in them, which allows them to make war against the desires of the flesh. That they can abstain from them meaningfully and truly and grow in grace, grow in sanctification. It all comes from being beloved by God. And likewise, where is this sort of exhortation to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? How does that relate to what Peter's already said? Well, people are living among the Gentiles. 
People are living among those who are hostile to God because they are sojourners and exiles. They're living in a foreign land with foreign customs. And so Peter reminds them, obey the customs, the laws, the commands, the precepts of the Lord. But sort of honing in on that first thing that Peter says, wage, uh, uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, there's two important applications I think we can draw from this exhortation. The first is that the Christian is engaged in perpetual warfare until he or she goes to the Lord or the Lord comes to him or her. The Christian is engaged in perpetual warfare. And not the warfare that one would expect as a sojourner or an exile. You know, if you're an exile, you think you'd rise up and, you know, kill the people who brought you into exile and then go back home. But no, the warfare that Peter speaks of here is a spiritual warfare. And, and I do think oftentimes that um, Reformed Christians, Presbyterian Christians, um, they can hear sort of spiritual warfare, and they'll think of like, you know, Pentecostals in Louisiana casting out demons, and they'll say, okay, I'm not about that. And rightfully so, we're not about that. But they'll often sort of then skip over the fact that Christians are engaged in a perpetual spiritual war that God has called them to engage in. He has called each and every one of us to engage in this war against the passions of the flesh. Each and every day, because do the fleshly passions ever rest? No, they, 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 don't, they don't. They certainly don't rest. And this is a, a call, a vocation, that is for every single believer. You know, I minister to college students a lot, and they'll say, what should I do with my life? And sometimes they say, what does God want me to do with my life? It's like, well, this is something that God wants you to do with your life. <laughs> I can prove it from the text. As opposed to, should I be a banker, or should I be a doctor, or should I be a, some other rich thing? They always want to make a bunch of money. Making money is good. It can support the church and all of that. But money, at the end of the day, is not going to satisfy the desires of the heart. But the Christian, every Christian, is called to this warfare. And if the Christian is not aware of this, then, well, uh, then, then you're basically just going to be fighting a war with no weapons. Fighting a war with, with your eyes closed. Actually, just not even fighting the war. You're just going to be slaughtered. You're going to be asleep at the guard post. Unequipped, untrained, like going to an actual warfare, having you know, never done a push-up in your life or never having shot a rifle. No, the Christian needs to know that he or she is engaging in a warfare, and a warfare that is spiritual. And so Christians, I encourage you, when you go to the Lord in prayer, when you seek his help, make this an object of your prayer, a chief object of your prayer even, that you would ask the Lord to sanctify you, because this war is against the passions of the flesh. And who can change their passions? It's like, who can make themselves love something that they don't love? Make themselves hate something they don't hate. I can't do it. I suspect you can't change your hearts either. But the Lord can change hearts. So we should go to the Lord and ask him to sanctify our hearts, change our hearts, remove from our hearts wicked desires, and plant in our hearts good ones. Cultivate them, grow them up. They would ask him for this. And likewise, we should ask him not only to sanctify us, but to, to strengthen us in our faith. To strengthen us for the time when sort of sin makes its battle plan known to us, when sin comes after us. You know, imagine being a soldier, and as opposed to, you know, in the morning, you know, strapping on your, you know, your rifle, your helmet, your, your bulletproof vest, and then sort of going on for patrol, you, you leave that in a pile, 
and you wait for the enemies to come, and then you're like, oh, probably should put on that gear, probably should get ready for the fight. No, you've already lost the fight. But if the soldier is prepared, well, then the soldier might win. And so we should likewise ask the Lord that, that he would strengthen us when sin does come, when temptation does come. As opposed to being ill-prepared for such things, we can be well-prepared when he provides for us, when we ask him to. We need to be sanctified, and we need to be strengthened in this war. One other comment about the warfare, the internal warfare that Peter calls us to here, that I think can be missed unless we read the text carefully, is that the passions of the flesh are really our passions. And they really do wage war against our soul. You know, how often when we think of sin do we consider its capacity to utterly destroy us? Oftentimes, and I'm, I'm, oftentimes I think we might think of sin as something that is unsavory, and, and it is unsavory. Something that, you know, we don't want to sort of have other people know. Yes, we don't want other people to know these things. It's embarrassing oftentimes. But Peter tells us, these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Wars are waged by killing members of sort of the opposing armies. The flesh is trying to wage war against you by killing you. And so Peter wants his Christians, Peter wants us to take seriously the danger of sin, to not sort of keep it in the corner, you know, keep it in like a little fence or a little pen, but rather to, to smite it to make war against it perpetually. Christian, make war against sin. And it's out of that warfare against sin that honorable conduct among the Gentiles comes forth as fruit. You know, a tree is known by its fruit, our Lord tells us, and a bad tree bears bad fruit, whereas a good tree bears good fruit. Sort of the internal character of the tree is displayed outwardly. Something that is invisible, sort of the internal nature of the tree, what species of tree it is, if it's a good tree or a bad tree, is manifested outwardly. Those two things are related. And Peter relates them as well. The internal comes before the external. And so if Christians want to change the world, and Christians are free to desire to change the world, in fact, it's often very good if we want to sort of see something change in our world that, that we regard as, as wicked or tragic or sad or, or broken. But, but the way to do that is... Well, first, by making warfare against the flesh, by seeking the Lord, by growing in sanctification, because only then will the Christian be equipped to conduct him or herself honorably among the Gentiles, to, to, to reform the things in the world that he or she wants to reform. That internal spiritual aspect comes first, not second. There's a famous um, work of political philosophy, which is eh, not the most interesting topic, um, but it's only interesting because uh, it, it, it's, it's a work about how basically Puritan England was the first society that introduced widespread reforms in it, sort of across a broad host of topics. And, you know, the, the secular Jewish authors, like, the reason for this is because they had a, basically a robust Calvinistic piety, because they hated sin in their lives, and then while they were hating sin in their lives, they looked out of the world and said, I hate that sin too. Let's get rid of it. It started with the heart and then manifested itself outward, such that a, 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 an author in the 1700s in England said that the scariest thing that you would ever see on the streets of England was not an army, 
It was not a bandit, but it was a preacher. Walking down the street with sort of the fire of heaven in his eyes set against sin. That that was the scary thing, because that was the thing that could enact social change. Not armies, not bandits, not warfare that is physical, but warfare that is spiritual. Changing the world comes from changing the heart. We can forget that sometimes, I think. Because that's how the world talks about change. That's how the world talks about reform. We reform things from the outside in, in the world. You change the law, and then that changes the heart. But Christians know that laws written on stone tablets have no means of penetrating the heart and changing the human. The human will still remain fallen, the human will still remain wicked and broken until that law is written on the heart. And writing the law on the heart is a spiritual thing. The Lord does that by his power, by his grace. So we see what the, who the Christian is. We see what the Christian is called to do. Then ever so briefly, we will see the, let's look at the consequences of what the Christian does in light of who he or she is. Gentiles, unbelievers, the world, they speak against you as evildoers, Peter tells us. The world will speak against the Christian insofar as he or she is demonstrating the Christianity that they believe. When the Lord Jesus said farewell to his disciples, when he gave his farewell discourse, one of the first things, one of the most important things that he told them was that the world would hate them just as the world hated him. The Lord Jesus showed the world the truth, showed the world that it needed to repent. You know, how many people want to be told they need to repent? That they need to change? That, 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 that the problem is not out there, but it's in here. You're the problem. I never want to be told I'm the problem. The world doesn't want to be told that it's the problem, and so the world hated Christ because he said, repent and believe in me. And because the Christian will both say, repent and believe in Christ, and live as one who has repented, and one who recognizes the constant need for repentance, the world will likewise hate the Christian, speaking against the Christian as evildoers. I do ministry with the high school students at my church, and some of them do go to a, a Christian school in the area, which has its own problems, as all sort of schools will have problems. But some of them go to, you know, the, the, the big regional public high school. And a bi-monthly occurrence is a sort of conversation with one of these students, generally, about how they said something in class that made everyone hate them that made there be sort of angry Instagram stories about them, calling them out for their hatred, for disagreeing with something about women or sexuality or politics more generally speaking, because people have sort of absolutized politics in our world. These are, these are people, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, and they're being publicly mocked, publicly shamed, because they believe in what the scriptures say, because they're bold enough to say they believe what the scriptures say, and it's going to continue for these children. It's going to be the case for all of us, that when we 
stick to the scriptures, when we hold fast to God's word, that people simply will just not like that. The world will speak against the Christian, calling the Christian evildoer, saying the Christian is wicked, saying the Christian is hateful, saying the Christian is harmful, doing violence with the words that he speaks to a great many people. And the Christian needs to know that if we are saying what God's word says, if we are believing what God's word says, if we are obeying God, then what the world says about us in that regard can't be true. Because then you have two voices speaking, the world saying something, that you are violent, hateful, etc., and God saying something, be a faithful witness, trust my word. God cannot be wrong. Though we are tempted to think that the world is right, though there's social pressure to think that the accusations of the world are true and that we need to sort of modify our Christianity to make it more palatable. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that he has given us a word, a stable word, a word that is accessible to all of us so we might know the truth, might know what it is that we are called to, how it is that we are to live honorably among Gentiles. Because we can't use their speech against us or about us as a barometer for whether or not we are living honorably among them. That's just the construction of the sentence. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, the honorable Christian is going to be called an evildoer. We can't trust the world's judgment. We must trust the judgment of the Lord in his word. But finishing out the verse, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Have you ever, and I'm going to speak uncarefully here, so forgive me, have you ever converted someone? In the sense that you, you spoke the gospel to them and bore witness to them in, in your life, and they, if they were to recount their coming to know the Lord, that, that you would play a, a role in that, a large role in that. The person might say something like, I saw the way they lived. I saw the way they treated their husband or treated their wife or treated their children or treated their parents or treated their friends. And I heard what they believed. And those things working together in my heart and the spirit of God ultimately working in my heart brought me to know that God is true, that he is there, that he has loved his people from before the foundation of the world and that he has saved them. What Peter is saying here is to live honorably among the Gentiles because you in your life are bearing witness to them. And there very well may come a day when the Lord visits them and regenerates their heart, draws them to himself, and that on that day, as opposed to speaking ill of you, speaking evil of you, speaking against you, they'll look at you and realize that the Lord was working, that the Lord was bearing witness through your actions, through your words, and they will glorify God for that reason. They will glorify God because of, because of you. God tells us that we are his beloved children, 
And at the end of days to us, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased, because what he says of Jesus becomes true of us in glory. God is so kind to his people as to start by loving them singularly from before the foundation of the world and to use them to work in and through their lives as strangers and aliens, as they make war against sin, as they live honorably amongst the Gentiles, to to bring him glory. And in so doing, crowning them as well. What, What a magnificent privilege it is to lead someone to the Lord. What thanks they must feel towards you if you do. Indeed, there are people who I've done this for. The Lord has used me to lead to him, and it's profound, the gratitude that they feel to the Lord, to myself, but the sense of honor that I feel, that I was able to do such a thing. The Lord gave me the privilege of participating in such a thing. It's unsurpassable by any earthly gift. And so at the end of days, when the Lord returns, making all things new, having restored his broken creation to its original state, and then exceeded that original state, making it better than it was in the garden. In Revelation, we see that there are crowns on rulers' heads that they cast before him. And yes, that does mean that at the end of the day that all of the glory does go to the Lord, and indeed it does go to the Lord. But those crowns were real. They were valuable, they were precious, they were beautiful. And Peter is saying that, yes, you you are living in a hostile place, your lives are not pretty, they are ugly. But through your godliness, through your good deeds, the Lord very well may crown you, very well might might give you something right now as, as a sign, as a foretaste of that glory that you will one day certainly have because the promises are true. And you might enjoy that, that gift now. And then at the proper time, render it back to the Lord, because all the glory in the end does go to him. You know, crowns, honor, honor in the church, honor from other believers is, are, are wonderful signs, or wonderful things that the Lord blesses us with, that can be sources of encouragement to us. But the Lord also has, as it were, more important signs that he uses to encourage us and bless us. You know, he sets us a table in the presence of our enemies, so what David says in Psalm 23, and, and we are in the presence of our, our enemies, not among us in this room because we are a Christian family, but we are, we are in this world, this world that indeed does not know the Lord. What a sad thing. But the Lord prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies, gives us these signs and seals of his covenant faithfulness to, to remind us, to encourage us, that yes, there is a better country for us, that yes, we are strangers and exiles on this earth, and yes, we do need to be making war against the flesh day in and day out. But at the end of the day, the Lord prepares this table for us because he is our Father who loves us and feeds us, nourishes us, and sustains us. May we be encouraged to do all that Peter tells us, because of that fact, because of his great love for us. 
And now let us go to that table and receive that love through tangible means that we might be built up and strengthened to know that it is true, to know that his love is true, that it endures forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, it, is, it is so true that your steadfast love endures forever, that you are faithful to your covenant promises irrevocably. And may, Lord, you strengthen all of us here to have faith in those promises, to know that you are our God and we are your people. Because, Lord, that is what you call us to, chiefly. You call us to trust in you. Christ has done the work for us. We are to trust in him. Help us, Lord, to trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.